all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vinati Swami Nitinamane. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauramani Pacharani Nivasesasan Nivadi Paskatade Satarani. Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Parakamalam Sri Gurun Vaishnamamscha Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Bitamstam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Paditana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakam Bitamscha Vanchakalpaju Bishakipasanabhita Paditanam Pavanavya Vaishnabhi Namon Maha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya December 11, 2017, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 27, Understanding Material Nature, Text 22. Jnana drishta tatvena Vairagena baliyasa Tapo yuktena yogena Tivrenatma samadina Jnana In knowledge Drishvatatvena With vision of the absolute truth With vision of the absolute truth Vairagyena With renunciation Baliyasa Very strong Tapayuktena By engagement in austerity by Yogena. By mystic yoga. Tivrena. Firmly fixed. Atma Samadina. By self-absorption. Muted. Unmuted. It's funny. And generally, if we say to someone, you're very self-absorbed, what we mean is that, uh, what we mean by that is that they're um, they're very narcissistic. <laughs> That's not what it means here. Atma means the uh, 
at the soul, and samadhi means you're in a state of total absorption. Well, interesting point we may return to later. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. This devotional service has to be performed strongly in perfect knowledge and with transcendental vision. One must be strongly renounced and must engage in austerity and perform mystic yoga in order to be firmly fixed in self-absorption. We have strongly, strongly, and firmly. If we look in the Sanskrit, we've got two. Baliyasha and Tivrena. Translation probably had three, and the Sanskrit there's two. Purport. Devotional service in Krishna consciousness cannot be performed blindly due to material emotion or mental concoction. It is specifically mentioned here that one has to perform devotional service in full knowledge by visualizing the absolute truth. We can understand about the supreme truth by evolving transcendental knowledge and the result of such transcendental knowledge will be manifested by renunciation. That renunciation is not temporary or artificial, but is very strong. It is said that development of Krishna consciousness is exhibited by proportionate material detachment, or vairagya. If one does not separate himself from material enjoyment, it is to be understood that he is not advancing in Krishna consciousness. Renunciation in Krishna consciousness is so strong that it cannot be deviated by any attractive illusion. One has to perform devotional service in full tapasya, austerity. One should fast on the two Akadasi days, which fall on the eleventh day of the waxing and waning moon, and on the birthdays of Lord Krishna, Lord Rama, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. There are many such fasting days. Yogena means, quote, by controlling the senses and mind, unquote. Yoga, Indriya, Samyama. Yogena implies that one is seriously absorbed in the self and is able, by development of knowledge, to understand his constitutional position in relationship with the super-self. In this way, one becomes fixed in devotional service and his faith cannot be shaken by any material allurement. Prabhupada is also really talking about the strength here in the purport. Yanena drista tadvena vairagena baliyasha tapo yuktena yogena tivrenatma samadina. This devotional service has to be performed strongly in perfect knowledge and with transcendental vision, one must be strongly renounced and must engage in austerity and perform mystic yoga in order to be firmly fixed in self-absorption. So Prabhupada starts out here, devotional service in Krishna consciousness cannot be performed blindly due to material emotions or mental concoctions. Now sometimes Prabhupada does talk about the effect of blind service. He'll say that if you're given a medicine, even without knowing, even if you don't know you're given the medicine, say you're given the medicine when you're unconscious, the medicine will still act. Of course, interestingly enough, in medicine, there's what's called the placebo effect. And the effect of medicine is much stronger. If you know you're given the medicine, you have faith in the medicine, you have faith in the person who gives you the medicine, than if you, uh, if you don't. There's a nocebo effect also. So... There is some element, even in medicine, of faith and knowledge. But in general, a medicine will act whether you know it or not. And in fact, engaging people blindly in devotional service, what we call agyata sukriti, 
unknowing uh, pious activities. Kirti means activity, su, very wonderful, agyan, without knowing, is one of our main preaching techniques in the Hare Krishna movement. We give prasadam to people who more or less think it's ordinary food. They're not eating as a matter of devotion. We're having people hear the holy name who think they're just listening to some kind of music. Um, We try to engage people in some sort of devotional service that they are doing unknowingly or blind. So it's not that there is no value to such agyata sukriti. There is, in fact, a tremendous amount of value is what gives people the good fortune to take up bhakti. Yeah, this is explained in many places. But bhakti itself is not just some blind material emotion or mental concoction. And Prabhupada makes this point many, many times. Most religions in the world, I would say today, most religious practitioners, we will say, not necessarily the religions themselves, but most religious practitioners are really on this platform. And I would say that such an assessment applies equally to Hindus as it does to Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and so forth. There's just, there's just some material emotion. You know, I love Jesus, or this is my culture, you know, I was raised Catholic, and so I'm a Catholic, and, you know, I was raised Hindu, so I'm a Hindu. It, it's just some material emotion, some uh, group identification. This is my tribe, this is my group that I'm a member of. I don't see it as that much different from people rooting for their sports team or people having a sense of national identity. Of course, if they have some, again, we have the agyata sukriti factor. If people have uh, some association with God, that's very beneficial for them. But ultimately, such is not religion or mental concoction where people are just speculating. Well, it says in the Bible that... We are going to be resurrected. That means that our bodies are going to come out of the ground after we've been buried, which is why we don't want to cremate anyone. And then our bodies are resurrected. And Jesus said we should have God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. So earth is going to become a heaven. And all of our bodies are going to jump out of the ground. At some point, it's going to be the judgment day. Our bodies are all going to jump out of the ground. We'll have a heaven on earth. That's, That's one of them. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses particularly preach that uh, mental concoction. Or, you know, when Jesus says that two people are working side by side in the field, one is working and one is taken, so this is interpreted to be what they call the rapture, where one day you look around and the people working next to you just sort of disappear, or they float into the sky, (laughs) you know, boof. (laughs) And, And then there's the earth is destroyed for all of us infidels that are left on it. And these are all mental concoctions. So people make up a, uh, either they just have some sentiment, yes, yes, this is our tribe, this is our religion, this is our tradition, and therefore that's what we do. And yes, we are, we're, such, we're Christians, we're Muslims. Or they have some mental concoction where they make up their own philosophy. And of course the results of these uh, material emotions and mental concoctions, again, we want to emphasize that if there's something to do genuinely with God and with a genuine devotee of God like Jesus or Muhammad, that people will, in the long run, get some benefit from that. Uh, just like Prabhupada in Nectar of Instruction, when he talks about the Majjhima, Kanista, and Uttama, he puts some of the Sahaja groups in the categories of Kanista. 
He says we don't associate with them because they're engaged in sinful activities, but because they're chanting the holy name of the Lord, we offer them respects in the mind. Uh, so I found that very interesting because other places he totally condemns the sahajas. Uh, in any case, that although there may be some benefit, no, we're not denying that there's some benefit if someone has uh, Natra, even eleventh of a second association with God or his great devotee. Those are not really religious systems, and the effect will be very delayed. It will be very delayed, very watered down. It's like if you take some real medicine and you mix just a couple drops in a gallon of water, uh, the effect may, may not be very pronounced. So it, takes, it will take some time. If one wants to engage, actually, in a process to find God, in a process to realize the self and know the absolute truth, then one has to do it according to scientific principles and very strongly. <laughs> um, we could say even if you have a, a bona fide process, the one that's not just material, emotion, or mental concoction, if you engage in it very haphazardly, then again it will take a very long time. You know, just every once in a while I'm, I'm going to engage in uh, some bhakti, you know, just on the weekend or for 15 minutes a day or something like that. Uh, one has to follow it very rigidly. I mean, such is true even with something completely mundane. You know, there's evidence that even if you do 30 seconds of exercises, you know, three times a week, there's more benefit than if you don't do any exercise. But if you really want to get the benefit of exercise, you have to have a regular program when you're doing something that is that is strongly done. Hmm? Like one of my grandsons is into... Uh, weightlifting, bodybuilding. So, you know, it's something that you have to do regularly. You have to do it, uh, shall we say, religiously, if you really want to get the result. This is true with, with anything. It's true if you want to learn a foreign language, if you want to learn how to play a musical instrument, if you want to learn how to make japatis, you know, anything that, that you want to achieve success in. And Prabhupada talks about this also in Nectar of Instruction. Uh, enthusiasm. That any, any endeavor, if you want to find success, requires some enthusiasm, requires some strength. And we're going to look in a minute at what is the scientific process that is given in this particular verse. Um, but we should note, before looking at that process, that the fact that there is a sadhana and the fact that there is a scientific process does not deny that the ultimate way of achieving bhakti is not really exactly because of our sadhana. In fact, this point is very clearly made by Rupa Goswami in, in the Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu and in Prabhupada's summary of the nectar of devotion. Ultimately, our success in bhakti depends entirely on the mercy of the Lord and the devotees. It depends entirely on grace. So I've been consulting the last few days on the Shastrik Advisory Council. We're in the process of writing a paper for the GBC about how to fast and break fast on Ram Navami. So I was consulting with one devotee about practices in other sampradayas. And this one devotee told me, well, in the Sri Sampradaya, they don't usually fast on Vishnu Tattva appearance days because they don't believe that you achieve perfection, you don't achieve moksha and vaikuntha through sadhana. You achieve moksha through grace. So why do a sadhana? Of course, they do in the Sri Sampradaya complicated processes of archana. So... That seems to me that is some kind of sadhana. Archana is one of the nine processes of sadhana. Uh, but we know that there is these two camps in the Sri Sampradaya, the monkey and the kitten camp. 
the monkey camp says that it is sadhana that the monkey has to hold on to the mother the mother's running around and the monkey is holding on and then there's the cat group that the kitten is really just surrendering and the cat is carrying the kitten everywhere so we favor in the Gaudiya Sampradaya more of the kitten view than the monkey view however uh, we don't deny that our sadhana is important and our acharyas specifically point to the Dhammadar Lila as evidence that both sadhana and grace are required that the two fingers too short of the rope that Jisodama was trying to tie around little Krishna represent sadhana and grace. So the purpose of our sadhana, and this is a very important point, I mean, this is the only point you get out of this whole talk, uh, this is a very important point. Our sad, the purpose of our sadhana is simply to say, I need you, I want you, I am receptive to you. The point of our sadhana is not to earn grace, it is not to earn bhakti, it is not to um, conquer the material energy. The concept of conquering the material energy and earning is much more prevalent in karma yoga, jnana yoga, and jnana yoga. But in bhakti yoga, even those require some grace of bhakti to be successful. But in bhakti yoga itself, our purpose of our sadhana is to attract grace. And then you might say, well, why don't we just wait for grace to fall on our head, uh, which it might do. Uh, why do sadhana at all? But without doing sadhana, we do not show our seriousness. So this is, it, it's a kind of a, a mystery that the mercy of the Lord is unearned. I have an email sitting in my inbox for a week or so from one leading preacher. How do we call it causeless mercy? It seems that there's a cause. The cause is what we do. Uh, this, this verse in purport is very much about what we're supposed to do. And what we're supposed to do very strongly Baliyasya and Tivrena, where it's something that we're supposed to do uh, with, with strength. So why is there this emphasis on what we're supposed to do and doing it with strength? It, it sounds like, you know, my grandson's weightlifting kind of thing. That's what it sounds like. And there's a direct relationship between how many hours he spends at the gym and how many weights he lifts and how the size of his muscles. I mean, there's, there's a direct causal relationship that he's the cause so it, it seems that bhakti yoga is, is like that. But no, it's not like that. And the analogy that I give a lot is that if we betray somebody, and I think the best way to understand it, again, I, I usually do it this way, is to first think of ourselves as the betrayed party. So when a person has betrayed us, when a person has let us down, lied to us, disappointed us in some way, so if that person then comes to us and says, you know, I'd, I'd like to uh, again have a relationship. I'd like to fix this. So no matter what they do to try to fix that relationship, we as the offended party are the ones who decide when the relationship is restored. That is our right to decide. The offender cannot say, okay, now I have demonstrated my repentance sufficiently I get to decide now that the relationship is restored. It's always the offended party. And we understand this very well when we are the offended party. You know, if somebody has cheated you and betrayed you, uh, they can never at any point demand a restoration of the relationship 
nor can they criticize you for not restoring the relationship when they want it to be restored. It's up to the offended party. So at the same time, the offended party is not likely to want to restore the relationship, especially if there's been a significant breach, just simply on the say-so of the offender that they want the relationship back. That's not very likely. You know, I, I know a family whose son became a heroin addict and was stealing from the family, and they told me that they would not allow him back in the house because they couldn't trust him. Now, they wanted him back in the house. It's not that their desire to have him back in the house was small. They had a huge desire to have him back in the house, but they wanted him to demonstrate that he was sober, that he was straight, that he was clean, before they would allow him back in the house. Still, whether or not they allowed him back in the house was their decision entirely. And whether or not we as the offended party let the offender back in, in one sense, is not exactly predicated on what the offender does. It's, it's our own will in the matter. And we all have experience that sometimes we let an offender back in, even if they've done something very small, or sometimes if they've done just a small portion of what we've asked them to do. You know, oh, I've offended you, what can I do? Well, you can do this and this and this. And then after they've done only a fourth of it or a third of it, we say, oh, okay, okay you can come back. And sometimes the person has done everything we've asked and we're still like, you know, I'm not ready yet. So therefore, our allowing an offender back into our life is causeless. It's not dependent on what the offender does to show rectification. It's a manifestation of our own will. And at the same time, we are very unlikely to exercise that will to let the offender back unless they make some effort at showing us their repentance in some kind of action that they perform uh, strongly and not haphazardly. So this is the relationship between sadhana and grace. All right, let's look at the sadhana that's being spoken about in this particular verse and this particular purport. And, And we should note very clearly that the sadhana of bhakti is not always described exactly like this. And just like Srila Prabhupada, when he initiated disciples, he initiated us with only one item of a bhakti sadhana. And that was 16 rounds minimum of the Hare Krishna mantra. It was the only vow of sadhana that he made us take. He did not make us take any other vow. Of course, he asked us to chant without offense. <clears throat> one of the offenses is to disobey the orders of the guru. So we could say that to chant 16 rounds offenselessly, we have to follow so many other instructions to which we did not vow. Uh, and Prabhupada had that notice, you know, all initiated devotees must. Uh, but it's just interesting that Prabhupada gave us that one vow of sadhana and then he gave us four vows of tapasya, four vows to keep us away from Kali Yuga. So one could say that that, and Prabhupada said, if you do this, your initiation vows properly, then you will go back to home, back to Godhead, that that is sufficient so that's, that's interesting. And then we have, of course, uh, the Nectar Devotion, which is a summary study of Bhakti summary to Sindhu, where there are 64 angas of Bhakti. Some of those angas contain many, 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 many subparts. And some of those angas are themselves tiny subparts, <laughs> which, is, which is also interesting. And they can be, the 64 angas there can be classified into the nine processes of devotion, and they can be uh, classified into body, mind, and words. 
And then we find Srila Prabhupada gave his followers, for example, the, a morning program as a group, mostly group, although one can certainly also do it individually, as a group sadhana. He didn't have us take a vow in that regard, but he did give us that as a sadhana. And then other things, as Prabhupada's mentioning in this verse. So the sadhana of bhakti is described differently in, in different times. And in our Vaishnav history, and particularly our Gaudiya Vaishnav history, we find that different devotees engage in sadhana somewhat differently. All within the 64 angas given by Rupa Goswami, if they're Gaudiya Vaishnavas. And Vaishnavas in other sampradayas, again, as we mentioned, the Sri Sampradaya, their concept of sadhana is again going to be somewhat different. So one should not take this verse and this purport as being, oh, this is the only absolute uh, non-contextual, non-time and place and circumstance description of sadhana. At the same time, it's giving us some general guidelines. So let's take a look. Uh, we're not going to go into depth, uh, but let's just take a look here. So we have uh, four things mentioned here in the verse, and uh, Prabhupada explains in the purport. Full knowledge with a vision of the Absolute. So, jnanena dristva tatvena. So, in knowledge, seeing the Absolute Truth, which Prabhupada says, devotional service in full knowledge by visualizing the Absolute Truth. And then we have uh, vairagyena baliyasya, very strong renunciation, which Srila Prabhupada says is, a, is the effect of full knowledge of visualizing the Absolute Truth. He says that this is not, it's not something temporary. It's, it's something that, um, it, it's something that's, that's baliyasya, it's very strong renunciation, that one is not affected by anything of maya, and no matter how, how alluring. He says the, that one cannot be deviated. Deviated means, you know, like you're out driving on the road, and you somewhat go onto the shoulder, and you, it, it makes a different sound on the car if you just deviate a little bit. So there's there's no deviation. And, and then he, it's also talked about austerity, tapayuktena, by engagement in austerity, which Prabhupada talks about here uh, entirely in terms of fasting. And then engage in yoga, yoga tivrena, again, very strong yoga, firmly fixed in yoga, and this very interesting term, atma samadhina, to, be, to have self-absorption, as Prabhupada said. So we're going to go through them again uh, very briefly. So I think we're going to start... It, this, in one sense, this is circular, and the problem of the fact that engagement in bhakti is circular uh, is brought up every once in a while by devotees. We're working on the Shastrik Advisory Council on a paper on hermeneutics, and one of the members said, it seems that one can only... Uh, I understand scripture by having faith in guru, <laughs> but the purpose of scripture is to know who is a guru and then to have faith in guru. So you have to have faith in guru to study the scripture properly and then scripture gives you faith in guru. Where does it start? And I said, well, this is always the problem. You know, where where does it start? We were saying it starts really by a gatta sukriti in the mercy of a devotee. But uh, the way that things are described in this purport, it appears that things start with some sort of austerity. Things start with some sort of uh, giving, uh, intentional, willful giving up of material activities to please the Lord. Although that is not mentioned in the verse itself. The uh, Prabhupada says one has to perform devotional service in full tapasya austerity. So Prabhupada 
is very much emphasizing, as he always does, that one is not doing austerity for austerity's sake, one is doing austerity for the sake of devotional service, some way of pleasing the Lord. And here the devotionals, the austerity and devotional service that he's giving, again, he will give austerities of the four regular principles other places, he does not mention them in this purport, is to fast on two Akadasi days a month and to fast on the birthdays of Krishna, Rama, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So he's giving three fast days a year here and two a month. Uh, of course, we fast also for Nasinga Chaturdasi, but he's not mentioning that in this purport. So what is the, how, how is fasting on these days devotional service? and What is the benefit of that? Well, if I have offended somebody, then I often do some sort of uh, rectification. (coughs) (coughs) That is um, some sort of restitution. Now, you know, if if I offended you by breaking your window, then I may pay to fix your window. But some ways of offending a person are not fixable in the same way. There, you know, if if, uh, if a man cheats on his wife with another woman, so you, you can't fix that like you fix a broken window. It, it's, it's just not like that. You can just say, well, <coughs> I won't talk to that woman anymore. But that's, that's not fixing it. <laughs> that's just saying I won't break your window again. But it's not really fixing the broken window. So one way that we can demonstrate some sort of restitution is by taking some voluntary trouble. And, of course, our problem, our offense to the Lord, is that we want to enjoy our senses separate from Him. That is our offense. We want to enjoy His energy, we want to, uh, without a connection with Him. Uh, be very much like if you invite a guest to your home and you're feeding them dinner and they say, well, I think I'm going to take my dinner and eat it in the back room alone without you. And then after eating the dinner you prepare, they just leave through the back door without saying goodbye. So you invited them over not exactly to feed them, but you invited them over for a relationship. And the food was simply a demonstration of the relationship. But instead of taking the meal in that way, they simply come for the meal itself and they leave without establishing the relationship. So that is kind of what we have been doing with Krishna. Krishna is providing through his energies everything to be used as part of our relationship with him. We want to use it separately from him. We want to forget about him. We want to deny that he's providing it. So one way that we can rectify this is to hang out with him without eating. I hope this makes sense to everyone. So, uh, let's say, you know, someone has invited you over for dinner a hundred times, and every time you come and you just take the dinner to the back room and you leave. And we see this sometimes in a family. You know, the, the teenage children, they don't eat with the family anymore. They just take the, they, just, they show up for the meal, they take the food to their own room, and then they leave without talking to anybody. So a rectification for this would be if they would come and hang out with the family when there was no meal involved, when there wasn't any eating. And that way they show, I'm not, I'm not coming here for the food, I'm coming here to be with the family. 
So this fasting is a way of saying, Krishna, I am not, I am going to give up some personal sense enjoyment and I'm going to simply use that time to serve you. Of course, in, in Jnana Yoga, fasting is done for a different purpose. Fasting is done as a way to mechanically gain control over the mind and body. And one has to be careful in bhakti that one doesn't try to enjoy that effect of fasting. I, I found this happen to myself when I used to do uh, near jungle on a codice, stay up all night, that the, there was a, a sense of, of pleasure from that vairagya. And uh, vairagya is mentioned in this verse. And it was, it was a very selfish sense of pleasure that, oh, I'm able, to tell, I'm able not to eat and not to drink and not to sleep. Uh, I am so powerful. I have conquered my body. So one should not fast in that way. That is the pleasure, the mundane pleasure uh, that's a side effect of jnana yoga. But it's a way of saying, Krishna, I'm going to abjure from the kind of, of sense enjoyment that I normally try to take separately from you. Also on a practical level, by fasting, and one has a lot more time to engage in hearing and chanting because eating involves shopping and cooking and cleaning up and so many things. It's a, it's a huge part of our, our day, a huge part of our, our energy. So it's also on a very practical level. So what happens when we demonstrate to the Lord some sort of, uh, as they call, restorative justice? This is restorative justice. So I'm not, I'm not just simply saying I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm giving up something. Um, I'm trying to actively rectify. I'm trying to, to pay for the broken window. So the result of that, of course, is that Krishna becomes pleased. Now, another result of that is that by taking some austerity in life, we gain the ability to do yoga. Uh, yoga, which in samadhi, to be able to fix the mind on the Lord, requires some mental strength. The word virya is one of the six forms of wealth, strength. So one requires some strength, just like I couldn't go into the gym with my grandson and immediately lift whatever he's lifting, 250 pounds uh, dead weight. I, I would... I would get very hurt. I'd have to start with, you know, five pounds. So <laughs> one also requires mental strength to be in samadhi. And this mental strength can be given mechanically uh, by gradually increasing one's time in meditation and so forth. And it also is a product of grace. So when the Lord sees that we are doing something in restorative justice, that we are acknowledging that we are the offenders and that we are taking some voluntary austerity to show our our sorrow, to show that we are apologetic. Then he gives us the mental strength to fix our minds upon him. And there, there's a direct relationship between austerity and virya in yoga, both a relationship mechanically and a relationship in terms of grace. Then fixing our minds in yoga, it says here, atma samadina, that we become self-absorbed. And again, materially, to become self-absorbed is a very bad thing. Uh, it means that one is narcissistic, that one only thinks about oneself. And one doesn't think about others. One is selfish. But in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna always says this, that one should fix the mind on the self and think of nothing else. <laughs> How is that? How strange. Uh, samadhi means you, you are so fixed on what your, folk, on your object of meditation that you, do, you are 
you do become unaware of everything. We have all these examples in the Shastra, Shamakarishi, Lord Shiva, who will become unaware of their surroundings because they are fixed in the self. But of course, the self, as Prabhupada says here, uh, our constitutional position in relation with the super-self. So what is it that one is fixed on? One is fixed on one's loving relationship with the Lord. And in the beginning of bhakti, that's of course very general. Jivaraswara Praya Krishna Nichidasa, I'm fixed as a servant of the Lord. And as we progress in bhakti, that becomes very specific. And I was speaking to one devotee the other day, and uh, who said to me, yes, I'm, I'm very inclined to Sakya Bhav. You know, I, I really like to be. I have some realization that I'm Krishna's friend. So as one progresses in bhakti, that if one is doing bhakti properly, that should happen, that some awakening of a feeling uh, for Krishna starts to develop and gradually manifests as more and more specific. And so that is one's self-absorption that one is absorbed, as Prabhupada would say, in one's real self-interest. And such doesn't make one narcissistic or narrow. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Because our real self is in relationship with Krishna, and Krishna is everything. The more we are absorbed in our real self, the more compassionate and giving we become. And it's just quite interesting. Materially, people try to imitate such an idea when they say, you know, first you have to love yourself, and then you can love others. But unless you know who is yourself that you're loving, that doesn't really work. Uh, it may be practical that a materialistic person has to retain their own sense of self-dignity and self-care when giving to others, or they won't may- be able to maintain their giving, but that's a practical adjustment for selfish people. But here we're talking about something very different, that when we have our real self-interest, we become the most compassionate. Now, it's difficult, again, we have this circle to say, um, what happens first? Because we have this jnana jista tatvena. So when I'm in yoga on myself, do I then visualize the Lord, or is it by visualizing the Lord in knowledge that I gain uh, focus on myself? So again, this is it's hard to say. What is the cause of what here? They're all these are all very intertwined causes and effects. But to visualize, as Prabhupada says, visualize the absolute truth in knowledge. So this can be understood on different levels. It can be understood that I've heard from the scriptures that God is like this and like this, and therefore I imagine, Prabhupada uses the word imagine in a lecture in Geneva, I imagine the form of the Lord based on the instructions from the Shastra and from Guru. It can mean that uh, I am looking at the form of the deity, that I am, I am using my external eyeballs and retina and so forth to look at the form of the deity uh, in the form of a painting, in the form of a murti. So it can mean I am using my mind to imagine a form of the Lord, which is another kind of murti. It can mean that I am looking at the, the murti uh, with my external eyes. And that's to be done in knowledge. Knowledge will tell me what form of the Lord is the Lord. And knowledge gives me the ability to uh, know what I'm looking at. So when I'm looking at the deity, when I'm imagining the form of the Lord in my mind, that I have some understanding of tattva, some understanding of what is the Lord. 
So this is, is very combined. I'm, I'm visualizing the Lord and I'm focusing on the self. Those two are very related. I'm visualizing the Lord in knowledge and I'm focusing on the interest of the self. I'm visualizing the Lord as the object of my service and I'm focusing on the self in my, as Prabhupada says, constitutional position in relation to the Lord. So it's, it, that way it is devotional service because I'm not just visualizing the Lord, oh, I'm going to visualize the Lord and then I'm going to get liberated and, or I'm going to get rich. Or No, I'm visualizing the Lord so that in being fixed upon myself, I can be meditating and rendering some service. <clears throat> so what is, the, what is one very measurable effect that one's sadhana and bhakti is, is, is happening? I mean, the measurable effect of weightlifting is that you can lift weights. I mean, it's, it's very measurable. You know, my grandson will take videos of, of himself lifting weights. You can, you can see. And it's, it's really funny. He was saying that he wanted to show that he's not taking steroids. So what he's doing is he's growing out his hair, and he's taking pictures of the length of his hair and the amount of weight he's lifting to show that his progression in being able to lift weights is happening in a natural pace because you can judge the length of his hair and the weights that he's lifting. My point is that it's measurable. He's able to measure, this is my progress. So one should also be able to measure our progress in bhakti. And one measurement here, it's not the only one, but one measurement here, is that no matter how strong of a material allurement is presented, one is not deviated. Now, such a situation is only possible when you have this drishtva-tadvena, or tadvadarshina, as Krishna describes the bona fide guru, when you actually see truth. It's the only way that is possible. And we should know very clearly that at a certain point this becomes absolute. Like with Haridas Thakur, Maya Devi herself appear, appears in front of him and he's not at all interested in any of her allurements whatsoever. As we're progressing in bhakti, it tends to be a, a gradual thing. So certain things which allured us cease to allure us, just like any of us who ate meat, fish, or eggs before becoming devotees. And once we take up the process of bhakti, the allurement of such things is completely gone. So before that, we may have you know, gone with great enthusiasm uh, to eat some meat, and we look forward to it, etc. And then after going to bhakti, there's no way that we'll be deviated to meat-eating. But any kind of allurement, any kind of advertisement, or, or any kind, it, it just there's, there's no allurement in it at all. So that's not a total freedom from Maya by any means, but it certainly is a freedom from Maya. It's something where the, the detachment is so strong that it cannot be deviated at all. And as we progress in bhakti, such things happen more and more. As, as they say, you know, you have to, once you've seen certain things or heard certain things, you cannot unsee them. And it is such seeing without being able to unsee that gives us this undeviated detachment. It's not a question of willpower. Willpower is exhausted. And willpower, you know, we see even with the great yogis who are trying to mechanically become free from maya, that they may be successful for thousands of years and then they get deviated. 
And I'm sure we've seen this with ourselves. You know, there's something we think, yes, I've, I've conquered this problem by my intelligence and my strength and my association. Aha, but then we're in some uh, difficult situation that pushes us over the edge. And again, we uh, do the thing that we thought we had renounced, whatever it may be. We're yelling at our spouse or whatever. Whatever problem we're, we're particularly facing. And uh, Prabhupada calls these things addictions. And these, the only benefit of these addictions is to point out to us our need for mercy, our lack of being able to conquer the material energy by our own strength, our, the areas in which we do become deviated, which are different for each of us. Each, is, each of us have our own struggles. We, we tend to think that our struggles are, are so special, etc. But anyway, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> One person struggles with... X, another person struggles with Y, another person struggles with, with Z or Z. Uh, so there are some areas that we're, we're still going to be struggling with even after years of bhakti. Because ultimately the way that we get into this undeviated detachment is through grace. That the Lord being pleased with our visualizing Him, the Lord being pleased with our meditation, the Lord being pleased with our austerity, uh, He gives us an actual vision of the truth. He shows us the truth. He says here, it's like this. And once we see the truth, then we will never unsee it. I mean, we could if we wanted to. Our free will is not taken away. But once we see the truth, we don't unsee it. And once we see the truth, we have no more attachment to the illusion no matter what. And I've given uh, so many examples of this. One example is how I went to Hollywood when I was 10. We had some relative who worked there. I got to be on the set of one of my favorite TV shows at the time. And when I was on the set, I got to see the tricks of the show. I got, you know, the show involved some, some magic. And when you watch the TV, it looked magical. But when I was on the set and I actually saw how it was done, then it no longer looked magical. And when I went back home and I turned on my TV and I watched the show, the magic no longer enchanted me. I knew all this. It's like you see, you know the tricks of a magician, and once you see the trick, you you can't unsee it, and then you're, you you lose the adbutaras. <laughs> you know the adbutaras is gone. Oh, what a what a magical trick! And that's the same with any of the material reflections of rasa. Once you know the trick behind it, once you know what's actually going on, once you see the truth, then the rasa is is gone. You're, you're not able to enjoy uh, the rasa anymore. And it's gone. And there, there's nothing that can, uh, that can tempt you to enjoy the rasa because you, you're able to see it for what it is. So the seeing for what it is is, is the grace of the Lord. One cannot force the removal of the veil of maya. You know, I had to get into the studio by the grace of I think it was some cousin... And it wasn't, you know, I mean, I suppose materially I could try to get into the studio with guns, but I really doubt that the actors would have shown me all their tricks, perhaps. But anyway, with God, it's not like that. So one of the primary symptoms that a person is engaging in sadhana properly <clears throat> is that the Lord has bestowed grace. And how do we know that the Lord has bestowed grace? What's the evidence of that? The, 
you know, some people will say, well, the Lord has bestowed grace by making me rich, or the Lord has bestowed grace by healing me of my disease. There's some kind of miracle. The Lord has bestowed grace in that I can make, you know, ashes appear from my hand, rascals appear from my hand. These are all the evidences of the Lord's grace upon me. But one of the main evidences of the grace of the Lord is that one becomes undeviated in renunciation. The Maya doesn't attract one. And again, this is, it's not just an on-off switch. We should be very careful in judging ourselves and others that just like in ourselves, we have certain areas of uh, Maya allurement from which we, we would that we will never deviate to. We have seen the truth and we will not deviate to them and we have other areas in which we have not yet seen the truth and we remain addicted and in those areas we, we, we beg for mercy and we go on in our uh, knowledge visualization and in our, in our austerities and in our focus on the self. We go on doing those things and awaiting grace and the same way that we do with others. The fact that there are some parts of our life where we still do become deviated uh, does not in any way negate the areas of our life where we have ceased to become deviated. And such should be the charity that we give to others as well. I mean, often we look at someone who is lauded as saintly, and when it's discovered that they have some area of illusion to which they are addicted, then we tend to condemn them entirely, forgetting that it is a gradual process. A gradual process means one gradually realizes one's eternal nature with the Lord, one gradually sees the truth, and as one gradually sees the truth, one becomes undeviated into illusion. Of course, it gets to a point where one is not deviated by any kind of illusion ever under any circumstances because one sees the truth, although Prabhupada says one can never see Krishna fully, that one sees the truth to the extent that Maya becomes revealed for what she is, and therefore there's no, there's no glitter anymore. You see what's going on, and, and, and there's just like, you know, I was hearing Prabhupada say, you know, Yamunacharya, he says, you know, I, I have no attraction for sex. He said, if somehow or other, some thought, sexual thought comes to my mind, I immediately am just disgusted. You know, there's, there's no rasa. That's not an aversion, by the way. Aversion is the same as attraction. That's not an aversion. It's just simply like, I see it for what it is. And seeing it for what it is, I have no interest. So we've discussed about the relationship between sentimental religion, agyata sukriti, and actually a scientific process, while making the point that a scientific process does not imply that achieving success in bhakti yoga is mechanical or that we are the doer but simply that we are engaging in our sadhana as a way of telling the Lord that we need help and asking the Lord to manifest help in our lives. And here we have uh, three aspects, well, four points are made here. Really, three are aspects of sadhana and one is an aspect of grace. The three aspects of sadhana, and they're all related. I mean, you can't absolutely say this is only sadhana, this is only grace. That's ridiculous. Nor can you say that these are absolutely, this is the cause and that is the effect. They're very intertwined. As each is the cause and the effect of the other. But we talked about sadhana as austerities, particularly here Prabhupada's talking about fasting. 
And this again is to show the Lord that we are focused on Him and not on enjoying His energy separately from Him, that we are fixed on our real self with the aim of awakening our constitutional position in relationship to the Lord, that we are using with with the transcendental knowledge from the Shastra and Guru, we are visualizing the Lord in our mind or in the form of the deity. And these activities of bhakti, these austerities, this focused meditation on our real self, and this visualization of the Lord in knowledge attract the grace of the Lord who shows us the truth in such a way that we become undeviated uh, gradually, gradually through various aspects of allurement until we no longer can be deviated by any aspect of allurement and we become fully fixed in our relationship with the Lord. So we have just a few minutes. Uh, Questions, comments, additions, subtractions... You mentioned something that I've heard before about attachment and aversion being the same. Mm. But it would seem that maybe of the two, aversion is better than, than attachment. Not really. Maybe okay, maybe explain. in the beginning, briefly, Prabhupada talked about this in one conversation where he said, you know, it may be useful in the beginning, but Aversion can be just as much of an addiction as attachment, and it, it really it still demonstrates a thinking that this particular activity or the lack of this particular activity or this particular way of thinking or the lack of this particular thinking is going to be the source of my happiness rather than serving Krishna as a source of my happiness. Whether one thinks that the presence or the absence of something is more important than Krishna, um, it doesn't really matter. You're still putting something as more important than Krishna. I mean, it's not a question as to whether or not we have... I mean, naturally, we should be adverse to eating rotten food. And we should be attached to eating healthy food. The problem is when you have some element of addiction. And addiction can be both in the form of attachment and aversion. There's aversion addictions also where, you know, we, we somehow idolize either that attachment or that aversion so that it's, it substitutes for God. And, and you, you, you see this. You see that people become attached to their austerities as a, a, in, in a way that makes them forget about God. Another principle of why aversion is the same as attachment is if it's an addiction, if, if one is addicted to the aversion, then one will be absorbed in it. You know, we saw this so many times with, you know, some of our erstwhile sannyasis who spent a lot of their time and energy speaking about women in grahasta life in terms of aversion. And pretty much, you know, almost all, not all, but almost all that I know that engaged in that ended up getting married. It, it's it, because you you know you go to what you think about. So if you think about something in terms of aversion, it doesn't really matter. It's what you think about. You know, if if you die thinking, I I hate that person, you're just as likely to take birth again with them as if you die thinking I love that person. It it's what we're absorbed in. Yeah. 
I want to just briefly answer Ramananda's question. You ask, is there a chart or something that delineates which of the 64 angas of bhakti is associated with the nine processes, the devotional service, and with mind, body, and words? I, I might have done that for my nectar devotion classes. Um, if you shoot me an email and remind me to look for that, I'll see if I can look for it, but it's going to be a delay in my answering because I've got so many other things going on with deadlines right now. But I, I might. I, I know that I did an exercise with my students uh, teaching Nectar Devotion with Bhakti Shastri where they're supposed to figure that out. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember if I have an answer key or not. So I just have to look if I just have the exercise or I just I, um, have the answer key. Yeah, Candida uh, is saying detachment is real renunciation. Uh, detachment basically means that I have no attraction whatsoever to enjoying something separately from Krishna. I, I just I have no interest in it. My inter- my emotions are flat. You know, when Yamunacharya says that he spits, it, it's not. Um, he's actually experiencing to some extent a ghastly rasa in relationship to Krishna. It's not. It's not material aversion, at all. It's 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 a ghastly rasa which is ecstatic. <laughs> um, materially, one's emotions are just flat. I mean, I think it's like if we drive past a McDonald's, you know, we we just it's just flat. We don't we don't we're not experiencing some heavy aversion. We just have no interest. I mean, we feel compassion for the cows and so forth, but that, that's different from an aversion, which tends to become some, you know, an aversion tends to become something obsessive. And, um, I hope that's clear. I need to go. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.